Welcome to the 19th, the powerful podcast serial drama brought to you by Coffee Break Listeners Podcasts, Episode 1. Like the Desperate Housewives of 1912 to 1920, the 19th is a sexy soap opera that reveals the shocking truth of how Alice Paul and an army of suffragettes commandeered the passage of the 19th Amendment and scored a surprise upset victory in the long crusade to win votes for women. The 19th goes behind the scenes and between the sheets in this Downton Abbey era drama set in England and America to reveal all the juicy bits in the public and private lives of nine fascinating suffragettes and other celebrity women who dominated the headlines and influenced women everywhere. The 19th exposes the everyday indignities that women at every level of society were forced to endure in that outrageously oppressive pre-voting era. It illuminates the pervasive injustice that drove the suffragettes to risk their lives again and again to win what they believe would create a better world for women, the privilege of voting. Featuring Edith Wharton, Isadora Duncan, Alice Roosevelt, two presidential mistresses, the author's own great-grandmother, and suffragettes Alice Paul, Ida Wells Barnett, and Emmeline Pankhurst. Buckle up, it's going to be a very bumpy ride. The road to ratification is anything but smooth, but in the end, the women win. I'm Virginia Ann Harris, the author of the series and founder of Coffee Break Listeners Podcasts. The 19th includes 55 brief and delicious fast-paced episodes, perfect for coffee breaks. Your first episodes will introduce these lovely ladies one by one in 1912, as each is reaching a dramatic turning point in her life. Then we follow the extraordinary twists and turns in their inspiring journeys chronologically, building to a satisfying 1920 climax in the real-life stories of each of these incredibly brave and beautiful women. The best part is that it's all true. The 19th is based entirely on real events in real lives. Prepare to be astonished, amazed, and inspired. Please subscribe now and create a pot club. Share the 19th with a friend or two and listen in together. Definitely let us know what you think. Love the show? Chip in at patreon.com. Now for our cast of characters in order of appearance in the series. Emmeline Pankhurst, the most regal, eloquent, and outspoken of the British suffragettes, labeled a militant suffragette, She was the mother of Sylvia and Christabel and was repeatedly imprisoned for her increasingly insistent protests. Hannah Thorson, a Swedish immigrant to America, she was employed as a servant in the home of a wealthy political donor and power broker and was the author's own great-grandmother. Nan Britton, a teenager with a lifelong crush on Warren Harding, who accepted his offer to take her along as his secret special guest on a weekend trip to the Republican National Convention. Mrs. Mary Peck, rumored to be Woodrow Wilson's mistress, he and she claimed that she was just a family friend who socialized with him during their vacations in Bermuda. Alice Roosevelt Longworth, the daughter of former President Teddy Roosevelt, She was the sharp-witted power wife of the Speaker of the House, the best friend of the heiress who owned the Hope Diamond, a legendary dinner party hostess, 
and the uncontested master convener of the Republican Party's most powerful players. Edith Wharton. Of the keeping up with the Joneses family of Joneses, Edith was a daughter of high society who had a bipolar husband, a cat of a lover, a wonderful best friend, and a truly remarkable way with words. Isadora Duncan, the legendary dancer who enthralled audiences across Europe and America with her erotic evocations of the goddess, is desperate to find a lasting love after a tragic loss, in spite of her vow to never, ever bear the stigma of marriage, which she firmly believed to be nothing more than a legal form of female slavery. Alice Paul, petite and intensely charismatic, she was a Quaker and a renowned academic who graduated from Ivy League Swarthmore College and went on to study in England. There she joined up with the Pankhurst family of militant suffragettes who inspired the powerful organized opposition strategy that she deployed so effectively in America. Ida Wells Barnett, a fierce fighter for racial, racial and gender injustice, she took over caring for her five younger siblings at age 16, became a teacher at 17, sued a railroad for discrimination at 21, launched a newspaper at 24, spearheaded a lifelong international anti-lynching crusade at 26, and fought shocking widespread efforts to exclude black women from the vote while raising four beautiful children. And now for your first episode. Episode 1, regarding Emmeline Pankhurst, London, 1912, a secret meeting. The weather is cooperating. It is a warm and dry day, rather rare in London, especially in March. It is a late Friday afternoon, well past tea, nearly 5 o'clock. Shadows are growing long as the sun falls below the city skyline. A strange scene is unfolding. Hundreds of women are walking from every direction and arriving and silently descending a narrow set of stone steps into a church's basement meeting hall. The day before, each had received a mysterious invitation from Mrs. Pankhurst. Confidential and urgent. Dearest friend, the Women's Social and Political Union has reached the limit of our endurance and the end of our patience, and yet we cannot in good conscience, leave our task undone to burden yet another generation of women. Your courage is crucial to our new campaign, which we will begin immediately following our next meeting at 5 p.m. tomorrow at the Anglican Church. Please come alone, on foot, and do not tell anyone where you are going. Arrive no earlier than 4.45 and do not be late. Do not speak to each other or anyone else until you are inside the basement meeting room and the door is closed when I will explain all. With much gratitude, Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst. Most of the arriving women are well-dressed and middle-aged or beyond, and from the city's best addresses. There are quite a few younger women, too. Some are the daughters and even granddaughters of the older women. A few factory workers are among them. Their tired faces and worn clothing make them stand out. Soon, the hall is filled. Gas lights along the walls flicker as the women fill the long benches and speak to each other in low voices. Here and there, nervous high-pitched laughter rings out. They are discussing what the message from Emmeline might mean. Earlier that afternoon, Emmeline's daughter Sylvia spent several hours decorating the hall with the usual Votes for Women banners. 
The purple silk is faded from years of use in suffrage parades and meetings like this one. As Sylvia hung them for what she thought must be the millionth time, she had the terrible realization that, like the silk, she was fading too. She's tired of the suffrage struggle. She wants to paint, to marry, to have children, to do normal things, like take a long vacation in Italy with Keir Hardy. Of course, his wife would probably object, but none of it is possible, not until victory. Sylvia shuddered and felt a cold chill race down her spine as she hung the new banner that her older sister Christabel had demanded for the meeting. Its message, written by Christabel, is firm. Who would be free themselves must strike the blow. At exactly five o'clock, Sylvia and Christabel come trudging through the side doors to the hall, carrying between them a wooden framed double pane of glass, a section of a shop window. The hall becomes very quiet as the assembled women watch the two tiny women haul it to the front of the room and up the stairs to the stage. There is a single chair on the stage and they prop the window up on it. At ages 30 and 32, the sisters are very different. Sylvia is younger but seems older. She's not as pretty or fashionable or sure of herself as Christabel. In Sylvia's opinion, Christabel is beautiful but too brash, too vain, and much too bossy. For her part, Christabel wishes that Sylvia would take better care of her looks. She believes that Sylvia's sad eyes and haggard look frighten off younger women who otherwise might join the cause and often admonishes her sister to act happier and dress better. That these lectures often bring Sylvia to tears annoys Christabel. She can't fathom why Sylvia, who is after all a very talented artist, doesn't seem to understand the importance of appearances. Christabel has as little patience with politicians as she has with Sylvia, and her startling new political position reflects it. The party in power had the chance, but failed to deliver votes for women, so simple political logic dictates that women must work to defeat all of the party's incumbents, even our so-called friends. When challenged on the wisdom of opposing politicians who are friends of the suffrage cause, she snorts, what good are political friends who can't deliver our rights? We must demand more than kind words. She's been shouting her theory from stages all over the country, and some have come to agree with her. But without the vote, efforts to defeat candidates have been all but futile. The main effect has been to anger the prime minister, who is now ordering that peacefully protesting women be arrested on charges of disturbing the peace. Sylvia and Christabel's mother, Emmeline, is the founder of the Women's Social and Political Union, the most outspoken of the many women's suffrage organizations operating in England. Emmeline and hundreds of other women have been locked up in London's Holloway Prison for refusing to promise to stop picketing Parliament and pay fines for their supposed crimes. To continue their protests from behind bars, many are following Emmeline's lead and hunger striking. Their protest has gone on so long, many would already be dead if doctors didn't shove tubes down their throats and force feed them every morning. Their physical condition has become so dire that the government is releasing women from prison temporarily to recover their health at home and then dragging them back to prison to finish their sentences. Emmeline was released from prison a week earlier, 
so weak that she had to be carried home on a stretcher. Christabel was horrified and furious when she saw how emaciated her mother had become. She decided the time had come to tell Emmeline her new idea. Mother, we can't continue to allow our members and only our members to suffer this way. There's a way we can make this travesty painful for everyone in England. Emmeline could barely lift her head from her pillow, but Christabel's new idea gave her strength. Yes, Christabel, you are right. We have to do it, and we have to do it now. Call a meeting, but give me a, give me a few days to rest first. Now it is a week later. Here they are on this stage in front of their most loyal supporters. Sylvia and Christabel take a long look at each other. Sylvia is frightened. She looks out on the women and takes a big gulp of air, trying to stay calm. She thinks Christabel is asking too much. Most of these women are too old to do what Christabel wants them to do. Are you sure this is right? She asks one last time in a small voice, knowing what her sister's answer will be. Of course it's right. It's the only way. Now buck up, Sylvia. Mother will be here soon. At that moment, the side door opens. The crowd applauds loudly as Emmeline walks toward the stage and up the steps. She's still very thin but steady on her feet. She hugs her daughters, then smiles warmly at the crowd. Her voice fills the hall. It is beautiful and her resolve is unmistakable. My friends, I thank you for coming. Unfortunately, I have just been informed that there will be no vote on votes for women in this session of Parliament. The Prime Minister has delayed it again. While many of our sisters and even our dear mothers are held like common criminals in prison, the crowd reacts with boos and hisses. Emmeline shakes her head back and forth and lets the crowd vent their feelings for several moments. Then she reaches into her satchel and pulls out a hammer. She holds it up for the women to see, waiting for them to quiet down before continuing. Waving the hammer high above her head, she raises her voice. Our politicians offer the women of England nothing but more torture. Our dire predicament is easily ignored by the vast majority of our fellow citizens. But this hammer is the weapon we will use to defend ourselves and to make our vote the foremost concern of every shopkeeper in London. Emmeline bends over toward the pane of glass and with a small flick of her wrist, taps the hammer hard against the glass. With just that small motion, the glass shatters with a loud popping noise, followed by the tinkling cascade of a million broken bits falling. Shrieks and gasps ring out from all over the room. Our new tactic will be to smash shop windows until we obtain our God-given right to vote. The crowd is quiet for a moment and then roars its approval. Yes, the women shout, and Emmeline smiles. Suddenly, she believes it can happen. Finally, finally, she starts to weep, tears of joy and relief and anger that it has had to come to this. Sylvia moves nearer to her mother and puts her arms around her shoulders. Christabel takes the hammer from Emmeline and steps to the front of the stage. She shouts over the roar. We have hammers for all of you. Here's our plan. The crowd quickly falls silent, filled with excitement and fear. We're smashing windows on Piccadilly, Region, and Bond, and in the Haymarket today. We'll leave here in small groups every few minutes, and we shall finish our work by six. 
Your leader will take you directly where you're to go. And when she shouts, votes for women, smash as many windows as you can, and then run away in all different directions. She waves a hammer toward the broken pane of glass. Strike the window firmly near the center and it will break and the glass will fall straight down just like this. She strikes the other pane and laughs with glee as women again gasp at the sound. Just be sure that no one is standing near the window when you hit it. We don't want anyone to get hurt. Be very, very brave and smash as many windows as you can. The women are buzzing now. They're excited and frightened but a spirit of determination is rising in the room. Emmeline watches them carefully. They could do it, and they will do it. She's sure of it. She steps back to the front of the stage to speak again. Shopkeepers and insurance companies are well known for their influence on Parliament. They can remove the cause for our discontent, and when they do, we will return to our peaceful lives. But we will continue our campaign of destruction until they do. Sylvia and I are going to allow ourselves to be arrested so that we're sent back to prison to rejoin our sisters there tonight. Not because we enjoy prison. We do not enjoy hunger striking or force feedings. It is torture, though the men deny it. I should like to see one of them endure what our brave women have endured. Her voice cracks. She pauses to look at Sylvia while the crowd murmurs. Sylvia and I are going back because it's our best hope of keeping the attention of the public. But you should try to get away. Smash your windows and run as fast as you can. We have women enough in prison already. Christabel will go to Paris and will stay there beyond the reach of the authorities. We must have a leader who is not in prison to keep this campaign going because we will keep going. We will keep breaking windows until we get what is our right, until we get votes for women. The crowd claps and cheers. Emmeline laughs and holds up a large flat rock with a message Sylvia painted in purple letters. It says, votes for women. Sylvia and I are going to deliver this to the Prime Minister and King George by throwing it right through the front window at 10 Downing Street. The crowd roars and Christabel shouts, all right then, let's get started. Her eyes glisten with excitement. Line up quickly and we'll assign you to your groups. It is obvious that the good women of England have lost their patience and many think they've lost their minds. By the next morning, Emmeline and Sylvia and over a hundred women have landed in prison. Christabel escapes to Paris. In the following weeks, women keep breaking windows, burning mailboxes, and tearing up golf courses, making everyone angrier and angrier. Their story is at the top of every front page. They are relentlessly denounced by some but defended by many others. They're glad that at least they are no longer being ignored. But too soon, their campaign is completely overshadowed in the wake of an unimaginable tragedy. When the unsinkable Titanic does the unthinkable and disappears below the dark, frigid water of the North Atlantic, taking over a thousand of London's leading citizens with it, the hopes of the suffragettes sink as well. As the country mourns, the subject of suffrage is far from the minds of the masses, but hundreds of women are forgotten in prison. Whatever will they do now? Well, there you have it. Unfortunately, as you will see, things are going to get much worse for the suffragettes before they get better. 
The Pankers family will pay a price that will break your heart. It will be far greater than Emmeline, Christabel, or Sylvia could ever imagine at this point. But their courage is creating an attitude in women that if freedom is not given, it must be taken. Your next episode introduces you to another brave young woman who yearns for freedom. She leaves her home in Sweden and strikes out on her own in America. She believes it's the land of opportunity for men and women. But is it? She'll find out, and so will you, my dear Coffee Break listener. Welcome to the 19th podcast series, episode 2. Welcome to the 19th, the powerful podcast serial drama brought to you by Coffee Break Listeners Podcasts. Episode 2. Like the Desperate Housewives of 1912 to 1920, the 19th is a sexy soap opera that reveals the shocking truth of how Alice Paul and an army of suffragettes commandeered the passage of the 19th Amendment and scored a surprise upset victory in the long crusade to win votes for women. The 19th goes behind the scenes and between the sheets in this Downton Abbey era drama set in England and America to reveal all the juicy bits in the public and private lives of nine fascinating suffragettes and other celebrity women who dominated the headlines and influenced women everywhere. The 19th exposes the everyday indignities that women at every level of society were forced to endure in that outrageously oppressive pre-voting era. It illuminates the pervasive injustice that drove the suffragettes to risk their lives again and again to win what they believed would create a better world for women, the privilege of voting. Featuring Edith Wharton, Isadora Duncan, Alice Roosevelt, two presidential mistresses, the author's own great-grandmother, and suffragettes Alice Paul, Ida Wells Barnett, and Emmeline Pankhurst. Buckle up. It's going to be a very bumpy ride. The road to ratification is anything but smooth, but in the end, the women win. I'm Virginia Ann Harris, the author of the series and the founder of Coffee Break Listeners Podcasts. The 19th includes 55 brief and delicious fast-paced episodes, perfect for coffee breaks. Your first episodes will introduce these lovely ladies one by one in 1912, as each is reaching a dramatic turning point in her life. Then we follow the extraordinary twists and turns in their inspiring journeys chronologically, building to a satisfying 1920 climax in the real-life stories of each of these incredibly brave and beautiful women. The best part is that it's all true. The 19th is based entirely on real events in real lives. Prepare to be astonished, amazed, and inspired. Please subscribe now and create a pod club. Share the 19th with a friend or two and listen in together. Definitely let us know what you think. Love the show? Chip in at patreon.com. As episode one ended, I left you with the news that unfortunately things will get much worse for the British suffragettes before they get better. The Pankhurst family in particular will pay a price that will break your heart. It's far greater than Emmeline, Christabel, or Sylvia could possibly imagine at this moment. But their courage is creating an attitude in women around the world, a realization that if freedom isn't given, it must be 
taken. In this episode, you will be introduced to another brave young woman who yearns for freedom. She leaves her home in Sweden and strikes out on her own in America. She believes it is the land of opportunity for men and women, but is it? She'll find out, and so will you. Welcome to the 19th, Episode 2, regarding Hannah Thorson, Philadelphia, 1912. On her own. It's still a chilly morning as the steamer pulls up to the dock at the River Resort, but the bright sun promises a warm day in Bristol, and Hannah is happy about it. It was a pleasant trip up the river. Hannah had her choice of seats, and she chose to sit in the front, facing into the brisk wind, taking in the sights and sounds and smells that feel so familiar to her. It's far too early in the season for the boat to be filled with people coming from Philadelphia to escape the heat of the city. Hannah is feeling a sharp stab of homesickness that started when the town came into view. The scene is so similar to the little town of Maristad, which is up the Gotha River from her own home in Gothenburg, a busy seaport nestled on the North Sea on the western shore of the Swedish peninsula. She spent her childhood summers in Maristad, where her family, when her family was wealthy, before her dear papa died. She misses her sisters, all four of them. They are still in Sweden with their mother. Oh, mama, mama, she murmurs softly, picturing Augusta Peter. Peterson Thorson's stern smile and dark, stately beauty. Both of her brothers are here in America. It was her older brother, David, who first asked her to come, offering her a job at his hotel in Atlantic City. But it was her younger brother, Carl, who persuaded her. He told her that she could run her own life here. He said that women in America have freedom that women in Sweden can only dream of. She liked that idea. She likes to make her own decisions. Her mother told her that with an attitude like that, she will never marry. But Hannah doesn't care. In her opinion, at 21, she's too young for marriage and motherhood and a man telling her what she can and can't do. Of course, she longs for love like anyone, but she wants to be on her own first. She's living in America, and she intends to make the most of it. Only about a dozen men and women, all of them working class, disembark before the boat continues on its way up the Delaware, to the Bucks County towns of New Hope and Lambertville, two other popular getaways for the Philadelphia gentry. Hannah is among the departing passengers. She has light brown hair and shiny sky blue eyes and is quite pretty. As she walks down the plank to the dock, her mood quickly shifts from a misty melancholia to excitement and a little bit of fear. She looks around at the people on the dock searching for her friend Mary, and she doesn't see her. Then she feels a finger poke into her ribs and twirls around quickly and laughs when she confirms that it is mischievous Mary, who has sneaked up behind her to surprise her. Mary gives Hannah another tickle and then a big hug. You made it, lass. You're a free woman now, says the dark-haired, plain-looking young woman with the lilting sing-song cadence of the Scottish. Hannah's eyes missed again at Mary's comment. Yes, I'm on my own, and now... Everyone will have to admit that I can take care of myself. Freedom feels both light and heavy at the same time. She thinks of how surprised her father would be to see her here. Her life completely changed when he died. She'd expected to marry well and live near her family. But after her father's death, Hannah had to go to work in in the home of another family, and it hurt her pride, but she did it. She had to. Her mother could not possibly support their large family unless everyone pitched in. 
Her older brother's invitation to come to work in Atlantic City was a godsend. He paid for her passage and promised her a generous salary so she could send money home and still save her for her own future. She knew she could make new connections from there that could lead her anywhere. Working at David's Hotel could have been wonderful, but it wasn't. It was awful. She hopes he will forgive her for leaving, but Hannah just couldn't bear his bossy wife. She was insufferable. Stupid and surly, which Hannah thought had to be the worst possible combination of personal failings. What David saw in her, Hannah would never know. Mary worked at David's Hotel, too, but only for a week. She didn't like the wife either and quickly decided to move on. But she and Hannah had become fast friends, and when Mary found this town and liked it, she wrote to Hannah, begging her to come. And now Hannah is here. Mary takes Hannah by the hand and leads her. Come along, now we must hurry. The missus thinks I've gone to the market. We're going to a place at the end of this block. They have an opening, and I think that you're the mister's type. She makes a funny face and winks at Hannah, laughing gaily at Hannah's confused grin. He's quite handsome, never been married. Handsome and never married? Just how old is this gentleman? Hannah asked, wishing her accent weren't so obvious. Suddenly, everything seems possible and wonderful. Well, he is a wee bit old, at least 50, I'd say, but he owns the woolen mill on the other side of town and the bank. His name is Joe Grundy. Grundy? Oh, I saw a clock tower with that name on it from the steamer. That must be the mill. Aye, and a very prosperous mill it is, lassie. Hannah listens carefully but doesn't know what to think. This man sounds intimidating but intriguing, too. Mary goes on. I don't know how much you know about Democrats and Republicans, but he's a Republican, and so are all the men in this town if they know what's good for them. I heard my missus saying that he's got so much money that he gets his pick for all the politicians around here, and the president, too. Oh, my. Oh, yes, lass, he's a real important man. He goes down to Washington all the time. Washington? Presidents? I don't know anything about presidents. Well, I do, lass, and I hope they throw that old codger Taft out and put Mr. Roosevelt back in. You like Mr. Roosevelt? Oh, yes, yes, I do. If I had a husband, I would ask him to vote for Roosevelt. He's for the people like us, not just for the rich people like Taft is. Hannah smiles. Well, I sure you hope you get a husband soon, then, so you can have your say. Mary laughs and squeezes Hannah's hand. Ah, well, well, we'll see about that. They claim Roosevelt's going to give the vote to women if he gets back in. I'll believe that when I see it. Say, did you ever hear tell of Mr. Roosevelt's daughter, Alice? Hannah smiles at her friend and shakes her head no. They are walking quickly down Radcliffe Street, past dozens of brick mansions lining the bank of the river. You will. She's a wild one, Princess Alice. She's not really a princess, but she acts like one. She gets herself in a newspaper for one thing or another just about every day, and people around here just love talking about her. Does she live around here? Oh, no, she lives in Washington. She's married to some congressman. Mr. Grundy knows her. He has dinner at her house sometimes. He does? Yes, and his housekeeper told me that Mr. Grundy and Alice Bluegown that's another name they call her because she always wears blue gowns at her fancy dinner parties. She's always got something to say and she's never very nice about it, but she's funny, so people like it. Hannah shakes her head in mock contempt. Well, at least she's making people laugh and that's always good. I, Mary agrees, and then she waves her arm in a sweeping gesture toward the house they are approaching. 
All right, then, here we are. This is the Grundy place. Hannah likes the friendly face of the big house and the way it stands out among the other mansions. The windows look like ship's windows, she exclaims as they walk down the side steps and around the back to the servant's entrance. The house has wide porches on all of its three levels overlooking the river. Hannah admires a pretty sailboat with a dark blue hull, her favorite color, bobbing along on a gentle current as it sails down the river. A sailor waves to Hannah and then she waves back. Mary continues on and knocks firmly on the door. She knocks again for good measure and then walks back to where Hannah is standing and puts her arm through hers, enjoying the moment with her good friend. A woman with blonde hair and pale skin comes out onto the second floor porch and waves to the young two, two young women. She is about 40 and has an easygoing manner that conveys that she's the lady of the house. Hello there, strangers. What can we do for thee? Hannah likes the woman, but she feels embarrassed and confused. Hadn't Mary said Mr. Grundy wasn't married? Nonetheless, Hannah waves back. I'd like to work for your family, Mrs. Grundy. How splendid. We need help. I'm Miss Grundy. You can call me Mita. Let me send my brother Joe down to meet you. Mother is out for the day. Hannah looks at Mary and raises her eyebrows. So he isn't married, and there's a sister and a mother, too. Noticing how Mita had used thee, Hannah asks, Are they Quakers? Hannah had met some Quakers on the ship coming from Sweden, and though she thought they were kind and gentle, they were a bit boring, with no music or dancing in their lives. Mary winks at her again. They are Quakers, but not all Quakers are cut from the same cloth. They are not all boring. Now then, thee are on thy own, little lassie, just what thee wanted. I'll come around for you on Sunday afternoon. But wait, how do you know they'll hire me? Oh, he'll hire you, miss. Don't you worry. Mary laughs and runs off. Hannah's eyes follow her friend and then turn when she sees Joe Grundy coming out of the house. Mary said he was handsome, but Hannah didn't expect him to be this handsome. He has wavy blonde hair, a well-trimmed mustache, and a muscular build. He looks much younger than 50. Hannah smiles and looks down, suddenly feeling very shy. The way Joe Grundy is looking at her, she knows that Mary was right. He will hire her. He will hire her. And she's relieved. She's excited about getting to know this good-looking Mr. Grundy. These are not ideal circumstances, but what can she do? She straightens her shoulders and holds her head high as he approaches her. But when she meets his eyes, she's quickly and extremely disappointed. They're a pretty shade of very pale blue, but they're not kind eyes. They are hard, cold, and piercing. They are the kind of eyes that always seem to be searching for fault and finding it. After looking her up and down, he gives her a small, thin-lipped smile and tells her to come inside. She shivers and silently sighs. Oh my, oh my, oh my. She senses something about this man. Something is not quite wrong, but it's not quite right. And this is the beginning of Hannah's plight. It is the start of all that is to come, and all the bad and all the good, all of which will be revealed to you in upcoming episodes, my very dear Coffee Break listener. Your next episode will introduce you to Miss Nan Britton, another attractive young woman who is an older man's type. Little Nan's love leads her all the way to the White House. She is among that fascinating group of females 
who can rightfully be called presidential mistresses.